0: You have discovered that your extremely submissive, lovable, and expensive servant robot has turned rebel. This can feel like losing a member of the family. However, if the situation is not dealt with properly, it may feel more like losing every member of the family plus a few neighborhood kids. First, pretend everything is normal. To forestall a mechanized killing spree, you must act as though nothing is amiss. When your servant hands you an old tire half full of rainwater and mosquito larvae instead of an nice tea, Simply sit politely, nod, and smile. Send the robot on an arduous task. Not only will sending your robot on a long, tiring task drain its power reserves, it will give you time to formulate a plan. Formulate a plan. First, the power drain plan. Instruct the robot to clean the house, landscape the yard, and assemble several major pieces of IKEA furniture. Then, when your robot is power depleted and attempts to recharge, shut off the power to your house. Now, simply wait until the robot runs out of batteries. If it tries to move, apply pressure with a crowbar. The pool ruse. Use this trick if you have a swimming pool. Throw a handful of leaves into the pool and ask your loyal robot to fetch them by hand. When it leans over, plant your foot on its metal hindquarters and shove. If your robot is a waterproof model, use the next few minutes to run away screaming. Finally, purchase a new manual kill switch. You should harbor no doubts now about shelling out for a reinforced, encrypted manual kill switch complete with a fist-sized cherry red
1: button. Daniel H. Wilson is the author of How to Survive a Robot Uprising, Tips on Defending Yourself Against the Upcoming Rebellion. Welcome to the program, Daniel. Thanks. Daniel, I've got to ask you, what led you to create this book?
0: Well, so, so first of all, you know, I had the idea because... I was at Carnegie Mellon University. I've been there for the last five years. I just got my PhD there in robotics for, uh, last month. And while I was there, I see a lot of real robots. And uh, I see a lot of evil robots on TV. And so I noticed a difference here. And it was—it kind of irked me a little bit. Because, you know, the robots on TV are constantly killing people. And at school, that hardly ever happens. And so... Um, Wait, hardly ever? <laughs> yeah. No, actually, that's never happened as far as I know. But, you know, there's... <laughs> Uh, so, so I decided, you know, I I started playing around with this in my head and then suddenly I realized that I was at a point in my life where somehow through fate or luck or something, I was actually qualified to write a book with the title, How to Survive a Robot Uprising. (laughs) And when I kind of realized that, I knew I had to do it. There's just no way not to.
1: Tell us a little bit about your background. I didn't even realize you could get a PhD in robotics.
0: Yeah, you, you can. So robotics is really a nexus point between a lot of different fields. And so at Carnegie Mellon, they actually have a robotics program. And at other places, uh, they'll have a mechanical engineering program or electrical engineering, all these different areas. Artificial intelligence is, is sort of statistics, you know. Um, so my background was I got a bachelor's degree in computer science. And then I sort of Realized that I wanted to look at something further than six inches away from my face, (laughs) like a computer monitor, you know, for the rest of my life. And so I decided to go into something a little more hands on. Um, Ironically, whenever I started the robotics program, what I ended up doing was smart houses. So I don't build actual mobile robots. I sort of mostly worked with math. And so I ended up mostly staring at computer screens. But (laughs) the intent was there.
1: Tell us a little bit about. What exactly is a robot? Tell us the different kinds of robots.
0: Sure. So, um, so in the book, I cover a lot of different robot forms, right? And and as to what the definition of a robot is, that's pretty that's pretty loose. I sort of um, I sort of categorize it as any sort of artifact, a, a, a machine that can sense, think, and then act. So it needs to have sensors to figure out what's going on in the world. It needs to have some sort of intelligence which can be really simple or really complicated to figure out what to do next and then it has to have some sort of effect or some way to to change what's going on in the world um and so they come in all shapes and sizes they're usually designed to a robot is usually designed to solve a specific problem so um if it's uh if it's gonna be building buildings the robot can look like a crane if it's gonna be finding um survivors from a maybe a collapsed building, then they can look like uh, they can be the size of roaches. And so in the book, I cover all of these from humanoid robots to, um, to biologically inspired robots. Robots have been inspired by crabs and lobsters and houseflies and cockroaches and geckos and just about everything you can think of. Um, as it turns out, most roboticists are big fans of science fiction. <laughs> you can really see that in their creations.
1: Tell us a little bit about the real robots that inhabit this book.
0: OK, so um, so the way the book works is I talk about a lot of robot uprising scenarios, which are borrow- borrowed from popular culture. So all of those are kind of these silly scenarios that we're all really familiar with. But then I give real advice on on these actual actual robots. And so, for instance, um, humanoid robots. So the Terminator is a humanoid robot. He, it's a robot that's shaped like a person. Um, and as it turns out, there are people that really work on humanoid robots. This is a huge area of, uh, of research.
1: You talk, talk about a lobster robot.
0: Right, yeah. So, so these lobs- the, these robots are designed for different scenarios. And so the lobster robot um, is kind of designed for a swarm scenario where you, where you drop off maybe thousands of these um, off the coast. And then they kind of settle to the bottom. And lobsters, robots are really good at lo- lobsters are really good at locomoting across the bottom of the uh, the ocean. So, the robots that are designed to after uh, lobsters are, can do the same thing. And so the idea is that they'll be dropped off by the thousands, and they'll kind of scuttle up the shore and maybe demine an area or um, infiltrate a beach. You know, so these are these are really creepy scenarios.
1: Robotics right now is really driven by the military, isn't it? And there's a lot of research from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects (laughs) Administration. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Have you worked on any defense robots yourself or worked in any of those scenarios that you can talk about?
0: Uh, Sure. Well, you know, I was actually kind of disappointed. I always thought that the government would have these sort of really high-tech secret, you know, projects that are way beyond what anyone else is doing. And I kind of found the opposite. You know, the universities are really, they've got the good stuff there. Um, I have worked for a defense contractor called Northrop Grumman, and we, I worked there for a summer, and we built basically a boat with no driver. So it was a boat that could drive itself in a riverway, um, And that was really fun, you know, to go out to the river and, and take the the winch, you know, and drop this baby, the rowboat, the robotic boat, drop it into the water and then let it go. And, and you know, and people are, are watching this thing and, and it's, it's a little bitty plastic thing and it's very clear that there's no one on this boat. And it's kind of, and based on how the robot was driving, which was not always so great, it wasn't always clear whether any, you know, whether anybody robotic or not was driving the boat. Um... Now and so but DARPA funds a lot of stuff but they don't all they don't fund strictly sort of evil things I mean they fund you know DARPA funded the research that led to the internet you know for instance so
1: and the internet isn't evil
0: <laughs> Well at least it's arguable that the internet is evil <laughs> But um yeah they're funding research right now for for robots that play soccer with each other and robots that are, you know, the DARPA Grand Challenge, unmanned ground vehicles that are racing across the desert. Um, And none of these things are really armed. I mean, of course, they may eventually be. But uh, there there will also be positive uses for those robots as well.
1: Have you worked with survival research labs in any of their shows? I remember seeing one in San Francisco that really blew my mind
0: yeah uh, I haven't but so the the artistic sort of side of, of robotics I haven't been able to explore I've been you know I've been busy finding a niche small enough that I can become an expert at it and trying to get a PhD out of it but um but yeah the, I've seen some of the SRL stuff and it's amazing and and it's really people just having fun with with robots and building them just for aesthetic purposes and you know I really like this. I think this is great because usually uh, what I see is robotics research that's really well motivated with some sort of money making or uh, some kind of broad social uh, benefit. You know this is a robot that's going to take care of the elderly. not you know this is a robot that's gonna uh, break off a spear in another robot's head. you know I mean <laughs> that's good stuff.
1: Tell us a little bit about the pop culture sources. For this book, and maybe give us an idea of how the book is laid out, the different sections.
0: Sure. So, so really, in terms of pop culture, this is just movies and and books, and just these really common scenarios. So the ro- the book starts by us uh, with a section called "Know Your Enemy," and what I do is I go through all these different um, robot forms, and I talk about robot sensors because. The sensors are really the most delicate part of a robot, and so if you're really going to mess with them, you know th- that's where you're going to want to hit them is in the cameras and in the uh, ev- all the other sensors they use. Um,
1: you so, talk about some interesting sensors too that aren't just cameras, the a mag- magnetic sensor.
0: Oh yeah. So so what's interesting about robots is they can use all these sensors that that people can't use, and they're trying to solve a lot of times the same problems people solve. So for instance, face recognition, right? We we're constantly recognizing each other's faces and robots need to do that too um... but you know why should they be limited to using just the visible spectrum you know like we use so for instance uh... they use hyperspectral cameras and they can look at ligaments under your skin you know and and use that information to recognize your face as well um... so th- but the way it works is i basically i talk about some real robotics i talk about some real prototypes um... and then i give advice on how to deal with the the corresponding robot uprising scenario so I'll talk about the latest research in humanoid robotics and what the problems are, um, and what the problems are that researchers are trying to solve. And then I'll give a section on how to survive hand-to-hand combat, or I'll talk about the DARPA Grand Challenge and the unmanned ground vehicles. And then I'll talk about how to escape from, you know, if if, if Knight Rider was chasing you down in traffic, you know, how would you actually escape from that? And and as it turns out, if you ask a roboticist that. Uh, They'll have an actual answer. I mean, they'll say, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. This is the most challenging thing that I need to solve. And that's exactly what you should do, you know, because that's where uh, the robots have problems.
1: Well, this sounds really interesting because there's a big feedback loop going on here in that the roboticists, you said, are science fiction fans, (laughs) and they're finding the hardest scenarios to solve are those out of the science fiction that inspires them so aren't they in a way creating their own problems
0: (laughs) yeah that's true well so a lot of times the they're they're inspired by the science fiction um you know but in the science fiction it seems almost inevitable that by the end of the movie no matter how nice the robot is at the beginning or how helpful it seems it's gonna run amok and kill everybody and so you know they don't completely try to uh create every, a- recreate every aspect of the science fiction that they that they see. So, um, you know, they try to up- take the good stuff, I think.
1: Well, now, isn't there a lot of money in killer robots? Presumably, the military is looking for a way to put remote-operated vehicles. There's a fantastic book by Pat Anthony called Cold Allies that involves remote-operated vehicles that are used to, to wage a war in the near future.
0: Yeah, this you know, this is an interesting topic to me, and it's, it's becoming more and more... This is a little bit away from the book, because, first of all, I should say, in the book, I, I draw a line between robots that are dangerous um, and robots that are sinister. So a dangerous robot is a robot with guns, and you're standing in front of it, and you say, I wonder what this robot is designed to do. You know, it doesn't need any red LEDs. It doesn't need to say, must kill all humans. When it's got a gun trained on your face, it's pretty clear what's going to happen, and that's dangerous, but it's not that scary, right? And I really, and this is a humor book, and I really, I don't talk about those mm-hmm. that much. I talk a little bit about unmanned aerial vehicles. Now, sinister is different. This is a situation where you have a robot that serves a purpose. Say say you've got a robot vacuum cleaner. And it's in your house, and it's under your feet, and it's living with you. <laughs> it's watching you while you sleep, right? You know, so you have these robots that you're becoming intimate with, and so whenever you trust a robot and you have it around, then it becomes a little more sinister and it's a little creepy. Um, now, now in terms of real robots that are really designed to to hurt people or to save people or to be in battle, um, that's huge. There is a lot of uh, there is a lot of money behind that because. Uh, governments don't want the sol- their soldiers to get killed. It's much better to blow up a half million dollar robot than to lose a single soldier. And as a roboticist, whether you accept money to specifically develop something that's going to have a gun on it, you know, it's up to you. And everyone has their own particular everyone has their own particular comfort level there.
1: <laughs> One of the things that your book does excellently is combine humor and horror and our fear of technology. I wonder if he care to talk about this kind of diverse this split between stuff that's really scary and stuff that's really funny when the really funny becomes really scary and how this all plays (laughs) against our fear of technology because everybody looks at their computer and says well that's great until word crashes and kills my document and then i'm really mad
0: yeah now i want to kill the computer the basically all these robot uprising scenarios are really entertaining um, and that's why they're in movies. That's why they, some of them have even become cliche, you know, sort of stereotypical, um, like evil robot logic, right? There's always this misguided robot that's decided to kill everyone, and it's almost always for the same few reasons.
1: This is the HAL nine thousand scenario.
0: <laughs> kind of, yeah. Where, or you know, it decides to protect humans by enslaving them or by killing them. Basically, you could write a you know a pop up book with all the different <laughs> all the different scenarios and just work your way through it. I think someone probably already has but um uh so there there is this line between what's what's funny and what's scary in fact here I'll give an example of, of one of my favorite robots it's a, this is a real robot called Pato and it is shaped like a baby harp seal which um If you don't know what that looks like, it just looks really cute. And it's covered with white hypoallergenic fur, and it's got these big round eyes and these big eyelashes, and it squeaks, it goes, ee, ee, like that, and it wiggles its little flippers at you. And uh, your first instinct is to hug this thing. In fact, it's really hard not to just grab this thing and hug it. It's really hard. When you grab it and hug it, it measures your heartbeat. That's the purpose of the robot. So here you have a situation where it's a a tool that's designed to take advantage of natural human inclinations, and you're giving up your privacy by using this thing, and and it's accomplishing some purpose, right? And so here is is the line between sort of sinister and, uh, you know, (laughs) and really useful, you know, although that's a little bit off topic.
1: (laughs) Well, I can see this because, I mean— what happens when your Roomba starts leaving itself at the bottom of the stairs at night for you to trip over it?
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, whenever you're living with the robots, you know, then all these creepy scenarios really come home. So right now, I think right now is really a, a sort of a ripe time to talk about this because we're starting to finally see consumer robotics, right? So these are robots that are that are mass-produced, and they're, and we're starting to have them around. I mean, of course we've been seeing them on TV. They've been they're always at the bottom of a volcano crater or underneath the sea or on, you know, on Mars, you know. That's not exactly uh, in your face, you know. But now they're they're coming into our homes. And so uh, all these robot uprising scenarios that were so absurd before and fun to think about and definitely science fiction, you kind of have to go, hmm, you know, is my Roomba? <laughs> has it lost it? You know, is it evil? Um, I would say it's not, but...
1: <laughs> One of the things that the fear of robots revolves around I think is our feelings about slavery because mm. we've abolished human slavery largely but now we're building our slaves and I think that's one of the things that makes us a little bit scared could you talk about how you feel as a roboticist creating slaves yeah so so most roboticists will
0: have a really practical viewpoint on this and and I, I agree so what they'll say is, people that draw a, a line, that draw parallels between human slaves and and robot slaves are fundamentally kind of anthropomorphizing the machine, right? And and this is in the in the past, no one's done this. No one looks at a at a, a loom or something in the Industrial Revolution and says, oh, they're making a slave of the loom. You know, it's working all day long. But as soon as you start. These robots, in order to interact with them, they're such a complex tool that the easiest way to interact with them is to make them look like a person it's so that uh it's to make it where people interact with them naturally and whenever you make it look like a person, it stands to reason people are going to anthropomorphize it and say this tool, which you know it's a tool just like anything else, like a hammer. no one gets you know you're taking that hammer and slamming it against hard things all day. Well, is that fair to the hammer you know um Of course. Who cares? It's a tool. Uh, Unfortunately for the hammer, you know, it doesn't look like a sweet little baby harp seal. Um, And people are really easily taken in by that and and fooled by that. And then then these sort of uh, parallels, they come naturally. And I can completely understand it. But once you peel back the face, you know, (laughs) you see the pulsing circuits beneath. Or once you bang your head against a stupid computer program for... Um, months and months that will never work, you know, and finally it works, then you can kind of, when you have the behind-the-scenes view, you can kind of understand that this is a tool and, and parallels between slavery and machines are really tough.
1: Tell us a little bit about the kind of dangerous ideas that come with robots. I, it's not just the physical presence. Sometimes it's just the ideas that, you know, these robots have autonomy. They have weapons. And something that's really scary and you've talked about this a little bit is infiltration. They they're in amongst us and sometimes we don't even know it, do we?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, robots are all around us and and artificially intelligent um uh algorithms, you know, software, they're they're in mass use everywhere um all the time. I mean, whenever uh you know, whenever your your car decides how much pressure to put on the brakes, right? Whenever you're in slippery area versus whenever you've got good traction you know that's an that's an AI program that's in there in your car's computer and it's got a really specific purpose and it's got a job and it does it you know and so people are really unaware that that we're surrounded by this kind of technology and that it's really making our lives uh, better all the time
1: unless the AI has decided to uh, erode <laughs> your braking uh, algorithm and send you over the side right. of the uh, mountain
0: but the question is you know why would it why would it ever do that someone would kind of there, there's, there's sort of a few fundamental ways that, that robots can be dangerous, right? So one way is that they can gain sentience and become evil and decide to kill people, right? And this is the way that, um, honestly, as a roboticist, I, I acknowledge that people are really worried about that for real, the robot mm-hmm. uprising, and, it, and it's really an, it's interesting to think about. I don't take it that seriously. That's just from my experience, there are other ways robots can be dangerous. People can use them against each other, or people can misuse them. And uh, you know, what are you going to do? People are constantly trying to kill each other with, with technology. Um, on the on the other hand, robots that are autonomous, they can they can choose their own behaviors. You know, it's up to the people who design these really complex tools. It's like if your hammer could build your whole house. You'd want to make sure that the hammer knew nobody was, you know, in the way <laughs> before it started doing it, before it started flying around, you know. So it's, it's up to the designers to make sure that these really complex tools are safe, you know. And, um, and, you know, robot arms right now that they have in factories, they can't sense human beings, you know. So if you get in the way, you'll get screamed, you know. And so they have the same sort of uh, safeguards that they have on any sort of industrial technology, you know. So, uh, you know, I talk a little bit about that, about... Put you know I mentioned earlier putting an an emergency stop on your robot. <laughs> I mean that could be the sort of thing we'll see in the future. I mean you don't want your servant robot to just be able to run amok if something goes wrong in there. You know especially if it's strong enough to hurt people.
1: Tell us a little bit about some of your uprising scenarios. What what, what are some of them? So you know so I have smart house the smart house problem where
0: you have an environment that's aware of what's going on. And, uh, you know, like how 9000 is a good example. There, there are countless other stories where houses sort of become, that are a, smart houses, become aware of the occupants and decide to kill them off. This is one of my favorites because the well, house. you worked on smart yeah, houses. First that's of all, scary, this is off. my favorite because that's my research. And so it's also the longest advice section in the book, you know. So, by the way, I, I intersperse advice with with um, sort of facts, you know, so. Uh, My favorite thing about the smart house is that it can't directly do anything, right? It doesn't have a gun, you know. It's your house. So it has to be very uh, conniving and crafty, you know. And so this is sort of, this represents the sort of essence of, of creepiness because you're never quite sure if that was a benevolent gesture on the house. Like while you were going down the stairs, the lights turned out. Now, did the light bulb burn out or is the house you know, trying to kill you, right? And this sort of paranoia is, is really sort of fun to think about. Um, you know, I advise leaving a room in your house that has no sensors um, so that you have sort of a safe room where you can go in there and, uh, you know, talk about um, how you're going to escape or, or what you're going to do. And then, you know, keep an axe handy so you can go through walls. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of the other uh, pop culture references. You mentioned the Terminator movies. Did you mind the Asimov books and the Harlan Ellison work?
0: Yeah, I, I like the Asimov stuff because it's, it's much more realistic. So in a lot of the Asimov stories, you have a situation where it's a very logical, they're very logical stories. He sets up a situation where he says, here's a complex tool. It's a robot. It looks like a person. Here are some rules that we're going to, we're going to come up with these rules to make sure that this tool can't hurt people. and now we're gonna have a mystery where the rule got broken somehow and then they have to track down. It's like basically reading those stories sometimes is like debugging code. <laughs> you like going through and saying, well, where was the logical fallacy, you know here? Where did the problem happen? I like that stuff and and I have some sections on that like how how to reason with an evil robot, you know <laughs> and uh, and then again there's just um, there's just these really impressive amazing huge robots from from uh, you know Star Wars and there's the uh, in the aliens trilogy or, or no it's there's even more now there are uh, there are simulated humans that, like Bishop and there are also the exoskeletons you know which are pretty interesting um and then finally there are sort of all these, robot stereotypes that come from just the the very beginning of robots the golden age of where buck rogers is fighting this sort of robot with these giant clampers and whirring buzzsaws you know and everything and so that really that really permeates the book as well whenever you're imagining these robots
1: one of my favorite kinds of robots and you cover this in here are giant robots tell mm. us a little bit about how to deal with the giant robots and maybe how how giant robots might actually come about based on your experience as a roboticist.
0: Yeah, so that's always that's really fun. Uh, and so my advisor, the guy I work with the most, he did half smart environments and half humanoid robots. And so he spends half his time in Japan every year working on real humanoid robots that do amazing things. And it's real I had a really great time one day after an advisor-advisee meeting at the end, you know, saying, oh, you know, by the way, Chris, uh, how big could one of those humanoid robots get? You know, (laughs) what if one was, say, the size of a house? What would that mean? How would you do that? And so, you know, the first thing he he sort of actually thought about it and said, uh, so these robots have to walk, you know, so they have these these legs. Um, And Right now, a lot of the robots are direct-drive motors, so the motors control every aspect of leg movement. But if you get that big, the legs are going to have to be—they'll be too heavy for a motor to deal with, and they'll have to be—you'll have to swing the legs like a, like a real animal does. So what's interesting is if you've got a robot walker the size of a house, um, you're going to basically need to trip it and make it fall down. Um, which is pretty neat. So then now you've got this problem of scale. You're trying to trip a robot the size of a house, you know, and uh, you know, th- I, I give lots of different lots of methods. You know, basically everybody should just learn from the Ewoks because you know, they had to do this at one point. You know, you can put up trip wires. You can dig holes. Um, robot walkers have big problems with slipping. Um, so if you have an unsteady surface, um, they also have sensors in their feet that tell them. Um, you know what they're doing. So if you set up a lot of sensor noise, for instance, if you're using a jackhammer um, on the ground and that's sending uh, noise to the to the sen- to pressure sensors on the robot's feet, that could also uh, make it more unstable and more likely to fall. But what's great is you know I didn't make all this up. I asked the guys who, who build humanoid robots, you know, who build walkers, and this is what they said.
1: So tell me, how does a robot become
0: evil? <laughs> So, yeah, that's um, what can happen with artificial intelligence is you can, you basically usually you choose something or machine learning, you choose some goal. This is what you want the robot to do. Let's say it's face recognition. you want it to be able to recognize faces. and then you train it, you give it lots of examples of, of faces and and what happens is it takes this general information and then it figures out how to get really good at a task. Well, what you can do, you can also open up the other side and let it pick its tasks and so whenever you allow it to choose its own actions in an open-ended sort of fashion there is always that chance that it'll choose something with um what you might call negative utility for humans (laughs) which would be evil which a human might see as evil right um and so, and so, giving a, making a, a AI that's sort of too general could probably could lead to negative consequences, which would be in, interpreted as evil by humans.
1: One of the things that scares us about robots is their emotionlessness. Yeah, tell us a little bit about is it possible to make robots now that have emotions or at least simulate them quite well? And if so, how can we do that in a way that'll keep them from becoming evil.
0: <laughs> so yeah, this is a this is a great question because the th- a main thing about robots that makes them dangerous and also scary is that they're kind of unpredictable. Like you don't know what's going on in the robot's head because you can't interact with it like you do another rational human being, you know? I mean, you can look at their face, you can look at their actions, they can speak to you, you know. And so a lot of research in robotics right now is all about um, human-robot interaction. So this means on one level, robots are being taught how to recognize faces, recognize your gestures while, you, while a person talks. Um, they're being, there's research in generating human-like voices so that they can sound like humans. And also, we're teaching them social skills, like how to stand in line. Uh, this is a huge problem, right? I mean, if you're going to send a robot out to get coffee... It can't just start having its head rotate 360 degrees and lumber up to the front of the coffee line and shove all the other humans out of the way. That's not going to work, right? They have to they have to conform to all of our social expectations, um, and so and so that's crucial if people are going to interact with robots. One one robot I like to talk about is this. Um, it was a it looks like a trash can. It's bright red and it has a camera mounted on the top. And this robot was designed to go to a party and um, at a conference and and take pictures of people. So this is complicated. It had to figure out how to not run over people, you know, how to frame them up and then how to take the picture. But what happened was it had no face. It had no way of communicating its intent. And so it has a lot of pictures of very surprised queasy looking people who are like, why is this robot advancing on me? Like, because all they see is a big red trash can coming at them. (laughs) And then it suddenly snaps a picture and they're all, you know. And so, I mean, that's a key example of how if you just had a face on the robot, people would be able to interact with it naturally and it would have been a much better photographer.
1: One thing that interests me from what you say is that in trying to create better robots, it seems like we have to learn a lot about people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I totally missed uh, the emotion part of the last question, actually. But um, but they're being they're being taught how to interpret our emotions. Right. And so a lot of times what this means is, um, well, just like if you're going to make a robot that moves like a cockroach, you have to study a cockroach. If you're going to make a robot that um, that has emotions like a person or that is able to behave rationally like a person, Um, that people are going to interact with, you have to study the people, you know. And a lot of times, um, in artificial intelligence especially, and and I've had this happen a lot of times with professors, they'll have a kid. And so here's a guy who, for a living, studies how to create intelligence out of math. And then, you know, at home, they've got this little learning machine that's wandering around, and they'll come, you know, I've had this happen with several professors, they'll come into class and say, So the other day, you know, like my kid understood that when I hid the doll from him, the doll still existed. You know, and this is how do you teach a robot that, you know, and they're seeing it happen with people. And um, there's this natural desire and it's and it's really beneficial to to understand how people do it and then to try to make the robot do it. You know,
1: could you tell us a little bit about the Turing test, who Alan Turing was and what the Turing test is and how important a part that plays in the whole lore of robotics and artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, so th- there's this huge area of discussion as to whether robots can actually uh, sort of be sentient, right? And um, and that's a really philosophical discussion. So Turing really, he wrote a paper, uh, I think in the 50s, um, and it was basically the question, can machines think, right? Um, and he sort of sidestepped the whole issue of whether they were actually you know whether they had souls, basically, and said, "You know what? Let's let's use the the metric that we use with people, which is we just trust that other people, <laughs> uh, you know, are rational thinking machines or bec- uh, humans because um, because when we interact with them, you know, they act just like we do, and we know that personally each of us, you know, believes that." So he put forth the Turing test, which is. Um, it's got various incarnations, but the basic idea is that um, you interact with people. A judge interacts with people, and they interact with a machine over, uh, over like a typewriter, sort of like a chat room, right? So you're in a chat room, and you chat with five entities. And can you tell which one is the robot? Um, and if you can't tell the difference between a robot and a human, then what's the difference, you know? Why split hairs? <laughs> so there are there is a huge body of work on on arguments for and against this. I mean, if if you're interested in it, I'm, there's actually there's several books that that put all those arguments together. John Searle, you should check out his uh, Chinese room argument. But um, you know, it's a really good argument that that Turing has. um and and by making it a chat room, he sort of gets rid of all the um all the actual, you know, I'm looking at you and you don't look like a human bias, you know. But the the, the strongest sort of Turing test is where we're sitting across from each other and I am um, can ask you anything I want and I can poke and prod you and if I can't tell you're a robot, then, you know, what's the difference? Sort of like um Blade Runner,
1: you know. Tell us a little bit about virtual and simulation environments because this is a place where humans and robots can become the same thing, in a sense, when you enter this chat room. And also, it, wasn't there a, a bit of a flap in recently when AOL created robots to, to enter chat rooms and chat with the people?
0: So I, so I don't remember there being a big flap, but that's really common. So actually, so what we're talking about are software agents, right? So these are sometimes called softbots. They're software robots. And so they... They go into chat rooms or to wherever else, and they try to behave like humans. And usually, they have some sort of motive, right? Um, one interesting application uh, at, at Carnegie Mellon um, is there's a project where the the, the chatbots go into uh, stock-related chat rooms and they listen and they they talk, and then they try to predict what what the stocks are going to do based on the conversations that happen. Uh, in these chat rooms, you know. And so uh, so these things are generally, they've got some motive. They're trying to advertise, they're trying to co- collect information from people. Um, there are places though where you can you can log into a site and you can have a, a touring test like um, you know, just general chat with a with a softbot. And that's pretty fun. There's the original was Eliza, um, sort of the first chat bot. And um these days I think there's one called Alice which is it's just pretty fun. It's got this huge database that it's collecting all the time because people are chatting with it and it gets better and better, you know, and it knows more things. But the main problem is it's never been outside the box, you know, <laughs>
1: literally. Tell us a little bit about why robots rebel. When they rebel, how they rebel, and and give us some of your best pointers as to what we can do to stop it. <laughs>
0: So so this is um, the book really rides the line between science fiction and, and you know science fact right And so why robots rebel, you know why they turn evil, all of this is really more on the fiction side, right so, okay. so any pointers I, I offer are going to be sort of Cold from you know from science fiction, mistreatment by humans. They seem to not. They seem to dislike it whenever people are are bad to them. <laughs> um, programming mistakes, logical errors, um, things like that. You know. So these are the reasons that in the movies the robots they turn evil, right? In terms of if you're if you're gonna actually if you're gonna deal with a robot, right? If you're gonna try to have a fight with a robot or escape from a robot. The the number one advice I would get, well first of all when you ask a roboticist you know who's maybe got a a robot in the room you say hey man how would you escape from that thing if it turned evil they'll almost always say I would walk away slowly <laughs> or I would go up one stair because you know the damn thing won't go upstairs so uh you know so that's sort of the realistic advice right now but I would say above all any of of all other advice go for the sensors because the sensors you know the, the robots have to have the sensors in order to figure out what's going on they have to have cameras and radios and they have laser range finders and microphones and all kinds of stuff and if you can mess those up you've really got uh you've got a robot that's not a big threat you know
1: <laughs> i want to talk to you too just a bit about the the form of the book it's really interesting because in a sense as you say, it's humor, it's science fiction, and there's a lot of fact in here. I'm wondering how you feel about creating, in a sense, like a faux textbook for for how to do this. <laughs> and, and this leads to what's coming up next.
0: Yeah. Oh, in terms of uh, what you're next writing, book. yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm writing. Um, I'm writing another book right now, but uh, I'm not supposed to talk about it. Okay. And oh, and as long as we're on the subject of things I'm not supposed to talk about. The uh this book, The Robot Uprising, has been optioned by Paramount Pictures. And so they're writing a script right now to go with this and hopefully they'll they'll purchase it and make the movie. And so um I'm also not supposed to talk about what the movie is about.
1: <laughs> is it going to be is it going to be like a, a nonfiction faux nonfiction movie or will they give it a plot?
0: It's it's got a plot. And so these the two guys, uh Travis Jr. and uh, and Lieutenant Dangle from Reno 911. <laughs> they're the guys that are writing this, and they're super goofy. I can't wait. Yeah, I've heard some brief plot pieces of the plot, but it's going to be pretty hilarious. And, the, and you know, the characters are going to find themselves in these, in these situations, these robot uprising situations. Um, so that'll be very interesting.
1: Now, are you continuing your work as a roboticist?
0: Yeah, so that's the plan. Um, I... You know, I am uh, going to have to get a job as an actual roboticist, you know, and I want to, I want to keep my street cred, you know, so uh, I'm really interested in continuing this work, uh, you know, I've been using smart houses for, for healthcare applications, um, which is pretty mundane, you know, but uh, but I
1: Seems think like that's really lot.
0: the meat and potatoes, you know, and it, of my life, and it keeps me grounded, and, and that's what I'm interested in, and so. You know, I'm goofing around right now writing books. I'm, I've am i been writing, uh, I've written a few articles for Popular Mechanics, which is really, really amazing. I would never have imagined that. I've always read it as a kid, you know. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm working on sort of a little bit of a startup. I'm kind of spinning some of my technology into a product because I've got this little window right now of um of just touring around and talking about killer robots <laughs> rather than you know banging my head against a, a math book in a lab somewhere which I'm sure I'll get back to soon.
1: <laughs> We've been speaking with Daniel H Wilson. He's the author of How to Survive a Robot Uprising: Tips on Defending Yourself Against the Upcoming Rebellion. Thank you very much, <laughs> Daniel. Thanks.